0: Welcome to Bandits Keep, I'm Daniel. This week I want to hit on a couple more topics as far as developing the game. I will say that I went in and looked at my main document and started kind of making changes and just adjustments, things I've added and subtracted, trying to reorganize a little bit to make the system simpler. Of course, then I realized after I did part of it that I probably should do it differently. So, <laughs> But at least it was good to go through and really start to dig into it. But I have something that I've been asked before, and I don't plan on adding this necessarily, but I thought I'd throw it out here just in case anyone was thinking this or they have an opinion on it. So in-chain male, man-to-man combat, so this would be the detailed combat in my system. The way I do it is you attack, as or you know, have as many moves, if you will, as many, quote, men, or it's going to be called figures in my game, as you fight as. So if you're a hero and you fight as four men, then you get four moves. Some of those could be parries, some of those could be attacks, depending on your weapons, et cetera, et cetera that's all fine and with some weapons like for instance if you have if you parry you might get a counter below if the parry works but there is this other part that i didn't use before and to be honest i think i just missed it and just didn't incorporate it and then later on i saw it and it wasn't part of it so i didn't really mind but basically it says note that each weapon listed has a number designating its class the shorter and lighter the weapon the lower its class a man wielding a weapon four classes lower 1 versus 5 2 versus 6 and so on strikes two blows during every melee round if a man has a weapon eight classes lower he will strike three blows during every melee round so i'm not using this partially because i don't know would that double <laughs> you know is it instead of striking two because everybody gets one hit right in chainmail so Would it mean that they would get double the amount? So if you were that same hero and you were using a weapon that was four classes lower, you would get eight attacks? I think that could just start getting really quickly out of hand. I am wondering about adding it and just saying if the weapon is that big of a distance, you might get one extra attack or one free attack. And not even an action, like an attack, like literally a free attack or two. But I think I'm just going to leave it out. Let me know what you think about. I have been asked about it before in the past, and I normally just say I don't use it because I have other ways to have multiple attacks, but let me know if you think that's a decent rule and if you have used it in your own game and all that other good stuff. A decent rule for this. I mean, it's a decent rule for chainmail, obviously. Okay, the second thing I want to talk about here is oozes. So your ochre jelly, your black pudding, your green slime, your gray ooze. Using the system, because remember, a lot of these things can only be hit by fire or cold or lightning. So using the system of, well, if you use a torch, you fight as a hero doesn't really work here, because do you fight as a hero if you use a lightning bolt? (laughs) You know, it's all the way to use lightning I can think of, right? And some of them can be hit by regular uh, weapons. So what I've decided to do here is actually make these guys a specialty case, which I'm all for. Uh, You know, I'm not one to lean into core mechanic anyways. To be honest, on some like meta level, I don't know if meta is the right word there, I would actually like every monster to have their own like fighting style. That is to say that when you fight a monster in this like ideal dream game that I have, you would look at that monster to see how you fight it. Like each monster would be unique and you'd figure it out. But I think that people probably don't want that (laughs) because I'm kind of a weird person and I like weird stuff. But I think oozes are gonna be the exception here. Each of these, they're gonna be similar, but each of them is gonna be fought in a special way. It's not gonna be as clear cut. They're gonna be fought in kind of a combination of techniques. So I'll walk through how I'm gonna do it and I would love some feedback. Okay, so each of the oozes will have an attack as for the abstract combat. So that is to say an ochre jelly attacks as five heavy foot. If the ooze scores a hit, it will begin to go through your armor, because that's basically what happens. So the, when they first land that uh, that hit, rather, and this is any hits, so not enough hits to kill you, but any hits. So let's say that a hero needs four simultaneous hits to kill them. They fight an ochre jelly, it hits them one time, it basically sticks to your armor. So it just needs a hit to stick to your armor. If it sticks to your armor and it's an ooze that can do it, it will start disintegrating the armor. If it's not an ooze that disintegrates armor, it will still try to work its way to your skin. And what will happen is every round from that point on, you will take 1d6 damage per hit die of the ooze. This makes oozes very powerful because they effectively auto hit after they hit you the first time. Now the balance here is that oozes are always hit by you as well. So if you want to fight an ochre jelly and it can be killed by fire and you run at it with your torch and you jam the torch into the ochre jelly, you will do a D6 damage per hit die yourself. You don't have to roll to hit them. They just, you just hit them. This is going to be a simplified system. It does obviously use hit points, and the reason why I think hit points work here is because I I just imagine the ogre jelly isn't having a boxing match with you. The ogre jelly is destroying your armor. It is a detailed, in-your-face, you-want-to-know-what's-happening type of combat. So for those oozes, that's basically how I'm going to do it. Green Slime as well, I think, although Green Slime had its own rules before, but I... I like the idea of it being similar, but I think, well, I guess I'll tell you. So the way that green slime used to work is that you, if, it, if you walked under it, it would, if it surprised you, some of the words, one or two, it will land on you. If it lands on you, it begins to destroy your armor. After it destroys your armor, then it will touch your skin and begin to turn you into a green slime. Now, I was actually talking to Todd, who I've been talking to a lot about these things. Right now, what, what happen. so before I, before I do that, let me roll back. So the way it works currently is once it dissolves your armor, it does two dice of damage. Then the next round, it does four dice of damage. Then it does eight dice of damage. It keeps multiplying, basically, as if it's taking over your whole body, which is cool and incredibly deadly. <laughs> but I also started thinking to myself last night when I was talking to Todd that perhaps you could treat green slime almost like a disease. So it gets on you and it actually takes a turn before it begins to turn you into green slime because it does say a turn in the book. So I mean, turn to me in 10 minutes, right? So slime falls on you. If you don't get it off within the first round, it gets on your skin. After one turn, it begins to start turning you into green slime. So you have a turn to burn it off with a torch to cast cure disease on it, to chop your arm off if it's on your arm, whatever. And if you don't do it, it will begin turning you into green slime. I think it would be more dramatic and cool if this took a while, like not just a handful of rounds and it kills you, because the other oozes kind of do that. The green slime could be a slow, creeping death that turns you into green slime over the course of, who knows, like hours, possibly days, depending on how I want to do it, treating it like a disease. If once it passes a certain stage, you will need to... obviously use Cure Disease to kill it because you can only burn it for so long before you'll actually kill the person that it's attached to. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about with Green Slime. Again, right now, currently, the way I've been using it is it lands on you. It does damage multiplying each round. The way I'm thinking about using it is like the other oozes. That is to say, it hits you the first round. Then after that, it does its dice and damage each round. So it doesn't multiply. But I think because it does turn you into Green Slime, that's kind of the point. I like the idea of it being like a disease, so I'd love some feedback on that and about whether or not you think I should use that uh, chainmail rule. That's all I'm going to talk about this week because I have some calls and I'm going to ShireCon this weekend, so I want to get this one out before I go. First off, I have a couple of calls from Ray Otis. Uh, this first one actually came in a couple weeks ago, I think, and I just, 9-7 uh, I guess, I just didn't play it. So I apologize, Ray, I am playing it now.
1: Hi Daniel, this is Ray. I really enjoyed your thoughts on converting spells for your Unchained system. And I thought you hit on a really good point about evil and chaos. Um, protection from evil is a spell that I've always liked and has found and have found to be very powerful, but sometimes a little confusing to adjudicate, partly because in the original edition of D and D you had chaos and law. But no sense of good or evil as alignments per se. So when you when you have a spell like protection from evil, what does that mean? And um, I believe the text and a lot of people interpret it to kind of mean things that intend intend you harm, right? Um, which isn't really quite the same thing as evil. What if you're what if you're a bad person and the law is after you and wants to hang you? Um, they intend you harm, and yet are they evil? So. That's difficult, but also it's just very um, you know like vague and broad and can be quite powerful. Um, if you go the other way with it and convert it, which I think is the right thing to do, to convert it to um, protection from chaos, then it becomes much more specific and, and easy to adjudicate because it's very targeted. It also takes into account things as well as um, intent. So, like you would tend to tend to think that if you're, you're could, if a sword intends you harm, harm for instance, like, or if a sword will harm you, it's a cursed sword. Does it intend anything? Well, no, not if it's not an intelligent sword. But if you have protection from chaos up and the sword is, is aligned with chaos, um, then it might protect you from that sword, from that cursed sword. So lots to think about there. Um, lots of interesting stuff. I think it's just something as a referee you have to make up your mind about and uh, be consistent about. But it is a little bit of a... a Uh, cognitive dissonance in the original rules to have that spell sitting alongside the uh, alliances. No, the alignments. I like to refer to them as alliances or allegiances because I think in the original rules Chaos and Law were more about what team you play for um, than a guide to how to play your character. Meaning, uh, specifically, if you're gonna have a miniatures battle which units, which types of monsters would show up on each side of the table, right? Um, If there's a Chaos side, they would include chaos and some neutrals, neutrals being almost like mercenaries. And if there's a law side, they would include characters, uh, creatures that align with law and maybe some neutrals uh, as mercenaries. And so when you think about that as it extends into role-playing, it becomes more about like, you know, what deities uh, uh, characters serve or are aligned with. And the the person, the behavioral thing is an extension of that only, meaning the deity might want you to behave a certain way. Um, but they might not, they may not care. <laughs> Maybe all they want is, is, you know, the, uh, blood offering or whatever. So interesting stuff. Again, thanks for doing all your videos and your podcasts and whatnot. I get hours and hours of enjoyment from listening to you and, uh, really appreciate what you do. Thanks. Thanks Ray. A uh, lot of things to think about there.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that, you know, it's right, exactly what you say. The alignment system, it seems, you know, based on Chainmail and OD&D, but at least three little brown books, it really does seem to be like, what what team are you playing for? And of course, you could extend that, and I think people do, right, via roleplay into, like, for instance, I'm reading the Brock the Barbarian series, and clearly the chaotic god, the people that are operating for or you know, doing the tasks for the chaotic god are doing the things that a lot of people would consider evil, right? But that's that's the God just wants these things that society is, you know, considering evil. The God is actually a God of chaos, if that makes sense, in, in my game. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Uh, I think it's it's one of those spells. And you know, one of the things I'm trying to do with this is to give enough meat on the bones so that people understand how I would play it at my table or my intention of the version of the game I'm creating but I also want people to make their own interpretations. So I don't want to fill in the details too much, but at the same time, I want to give enough meat. So yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at there. Thank you so much for the kind words. All right, Ray's got another call. Counterspell and non-humans.
1: Hey, Daniel, this is Ray again. I enjoyed your latest podcast on the non-human races and other things, kind of a follow-up to the spells podcast. And uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to bring up. One, I, I heard you mention that you'd like to have a counterspelling Um, addition to your Unchained, and I agree, I'd love to see Counterspelling in there. I think the one that you're probably looking at is the one from Chainmail, which I think is quite workable. It probably doesn't need even tweaking. You could probably just uh, port it over wholesale. And I'm not sure why Counterspells never made it into D&D, other than maybe they fit awkwardly in the combat sequence. And so it would kind of go like this. This is how I imagine it. you roll initiative, and then uh, the loser of initiative declares what they're doing first. And so if an enemy wizard is saying, I'm casting, um, then the, the party wizard who won initiative could say, well, then I'm going to counterspell, right? So it's almost like a, a hold action. Like I'm, my action is to wait to see if they cast a spell, and if they do, I'm going to counter it. Uh, and that's a little awkward to adjudicate, especially if you do the combat sequencing a little different. Um, maybe you treat it like a reaction is in fifth edition or something but uh, I like the idea it's just a question of execution the other thing I was just going to say is that for the non-human characters it's always interesting to see what material people include Um, men and magic is you know definitive in what it presents uh, not complete in any way (laughs) but I mean whatever's in there you assume that the characters have those things Uh, but then it it points to Chainmail for Elves specifically and says that it has their uh, a particular fighting abil- ability against other creature types as noted in Chainmail, something like that. And the only thing I can find in Chainmail is their ability uh, versus Trolls and it's a tweak to the Chainmail combat system. And so in the alternative combat system I guess you would just treat it like a plus two or something to hit and damage against trolls. I mean, that's just, it's just a guess basically, or, or an estimation what you want to do with that, but it does say that they get that. And so you're tempted to bring that in everything else, everything else, um, is, except for maybe the halfling's missile stuff, everything else is really kind of optional, I think, for a DM. Uh, Let's start with Monsters and Treasures, because that's the easiest one to to call out. Monsters and Treasures brings up the elves... uh, I think it brings up the elves' ability with magic weapons to get a little extra damage, but I think it it certainly brings up their ability to uh, move quietly and hide in their gray-green cloaks. Uh, For dwarves, it brings up the half damage to dwarves from... Larger clumsy types like giants and ogres. Uh, because of the dwarf size, uh, there's no entry for hobbits, so we might assume that hobbits would get that same benefit because they're even smaller. But we, won't, we don't know that because there's no entry for Hobbits as monsters. But I, I just want to say that you know monsters are not characters, right? One of the things we know is that all monsters can see in the dark. And the minute they become attached to a character party, um, either as a character or a hireling or, or a retainer or whatever, they lose the ability to see in the dark immediately. Uh, and for whatever reason that is, however you want to justify it, my point is uh, nothing in the monster entries Really needs to be like uh, mandatorily brought over to apply to characters, so then you look at chainmail chainmail has lots of stuff right nothing for dwarves particularly, but for hobbits it says they can uh, throw missiles as far as a bowman can shoot, which doesn't de- it doesn't define what type of bow or anything but it is interesting what uh, what they say there. Um, and that they can hide, right? That they it doesn't explain it very well, but basically as a unit, they're they're good at hiding. Um, for elves, it mentions split move and fire, extra damage from magic weapons, um, the ability versus trolls, and uh, is there anything else? Uh, the well, hiding, you know, right? Hiding in their gray green cloaks. And uh, again, I think what that presumes for elves is they start with a elven cloak and boots and you can decide whether characters get that or whether they have to adventure for it, maybe to do a mission for an elf King or something to, to be given those. But um, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's just interesting what is drawn in, right? You, you can't, most of it, you can't uh, translate, 100%, or it's not, it's either not given to you enough detail, you know, only suggested, or it's given to you in a way that works for chainmail, and then what you do with it in the alternative combat system is kind of up to you, um, or for characters is kind of up to you. But I, I just would point out, you know, chainmail is about units, and monsters and treasures is about monsters. Neither one is specifically about characters, and so I, I don't feel compelled. As a as a DM to bring any either of those things in too seriously, um, but you know DM's choice, right? So thanks again, and uh, I'll talk to you real soon.
0: Thanks, Ray. Yeah, really good points there. Uh, you, you know, I did. I have um, <laughs> right. I because I was trying to use chainmail as my basis for the combat, which is basically what we're talking about when we're when I'm kind of putting this together, at least at this point. That is where I pulled most of this stuff. I, I did not, if I remember, now I have to look again. <laughs> I, I didn't pull certain things. Right, okay, so for instance, I didn't, <laughs> to, con- to confirm. I didn't give the Elves the ability to hide because I also took that as Elven Cloak and Boots, which is basically listed, especially since it says with the cloaks, right? You know, whether or not you wanted to start with that, I mean, that's actually a pretty interesting idea. I hadn't really thought about that. I, I did keep, though, the using of the magic swords and the extra dice against goblins and stuff. And with the halflings, I basically just made all weapons short range. I figure that covers the things there. But as you say, none of it really needs to be in there. It kind of comes down to what you want to do. I just feel like because I'm not using the alternate combat system, I'm trying to use chainmail as much as possible. So yeah, 100% makes sense. As far as counterspell, yeah, I agree. And actually, I really like your idea. I was talking to Todd last night uh, about several things, and that was one of them. And I said, I'll probably just use the chainmail one But then the idea came up is like, does it use a spell slot? Is it a spell? Do you need to declare it? The way that you're saying to do it is actually really elegant uh, using the initiative. Since I typically have everyone state their actions first, that would be a little more difficult, but not impossible. The way that I had basically thought about it was you would say, I'm casting a spell and then, like, write it down on a piece of paper or just know it in your head and know your characters aren't, your players aren't going to lie to you. And then you would just ask them, which would make them have to decide if they're casting a counterspell and they may cast it, even if the other person is not casting a spell. Which is a little bit clunky and maybe people have a lot of misfires. You know, he didn't love the idea that there was no cost. So, you know, there's some back and forth on it. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on the cost of it, if it should cost a spell slot. I don't think it should, because then what kind of spell slot would it cost? You know, does it have to be equal to what you're blocking? All these other things start coming in. And I don't think I want to get that complicated with it. I like the idea you have to roll for it. And I think that I like the idea of just being able to do it if you say you're doing it up front. So I think the way I'm probably going to do it, and again, feedback would be great, is you're a magic user you think that somebody on the other side is a magic user, or if it's multiple rounds, you know because they cast a spell prior, you say, I'm going to counterspell that magic user. You know, and if you're a fair DM, and you've already noted what the character is going to do, and they're going to cast a spell, then perfect, you can counterspell them. If they weren't going to cast a spell, then obviously, it's not really a big deal because the counterspell will do nothing. (laughs) Or maybe it'll prevent them from casting a spell the next round. Maybe if you can just maintain the counter spell, it will just prevent them from casting. So there's lots of ways you could play it out. I actually really like your um your idea. And since we are rolling initiative anyways, I think if you just uh hold spellcasting declaration until your turn in initiative, that would solve the problem. You know, you could just do it then. So I may have to do that. I'll figure out how to write that up in a way that's cleaner than me rambling. But I like that a lot. I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, I'm probably just gonna take it wholesale from chainmail with no changes to see how it goes. That's pretty much what I've done with most of this. And then as I find areas where it's just not working for me, that's where I make my changes. So thanks so much for calling in. Uh, if people do not know, uh, Ray's got the Plundergrounds podcast, also has lots of products on itch.io. The one that you probably see bouncing around the internet a lot uh, lately is x 75 but Ray's done a lot of stuff it's got a really cool Oracle. And uh, yeah, thanks for calling in. And we got some calls from, I believe, Jason. Actually, I got a whole bunch of calls here from Chicago Is. We'll do those first. <laughs> this time, this time they sent them in a bunch of uh, short messages.
2: Hey, Daniel, is that thunderstorms? Or is that the secret word?
0: <laughs> Both.
2: Hey, Daniel, Michael, Chicago Is once again. And this is probably going to be the last comment from your Classes and Races episode. Uh, Just commenting where you were musing about uh, how stripped down to make the rules with uh, um, uh, magic books and things exploding and stuff like that. You know, that's something that playing classic traveler is kind of teaching me with this idea of random difficulty. Um, you know, the, the players had uh, to—they were trying to upgrade a computer on an old shuttle so that they could do more than one thing at a time. And I randomly rolled to see, well, how difficult is that really going to be? Well, it ended up that the dice told me, no, it's going to be really difficult. And so then I made the uh, the player uh, roll against it. And, and they didn't know. They just were like, hey, you know— you need to make a roll to see how well you're going to do this. Ah, you missed it. Well, it's going to take you a little bit longer. It's going to take you double the time instead of... But, you know, not every time. And, and that's something that I think, you know, we as, we as DMs maybe, you know, I, I think a lot of DMs fall into this, well, it's got to be all procedural. You know, we must follow step one. And step two, and then step three, and step four. And you know that's great and all, and and it certainly helps. But I, I think we forget that, you know, in in the literature and in, in the movies and whatnot. You know, they're always struggling to copy spells in the books. But sometimes, you know, that one spell just for whatever reason, and. That's a DM rolling at random to say, oh, is this going to be screwed up or is this going to be fairly straightforward? And, and I think that interjecting that kind of randomness or that kind of, of thought process that, you know, you can kind of check to see is this something that's going to happen or not. It's not anything that needs to be codified, but you can do it at moments of inspiration or moments when it seems to make sense to you as a DM. To be able to say, well, this is the point that, you know what, copying the spell, as you're getting into it, you're realizing, wow, this is really kind of difficult and complex, and yeah, you're probably going to need to make a saving throw or something to see how well this works. Just something like that. Anyway, I'm rambling. It's been a long drive, so uh, this is the last comment, I think. So, yeah. Good stuff.
0: Game on. I think I'm not playing these in order, just to make that clear. <laughs> but actually, it's interesting. One thing you're talking about there—that this idea that, you know, sometimes it's one way, sometimes it's another way—and there's certainly a. I first of all, I agree, <laughs> but there's certainly a group of people, or some people, or a thought uh, out there that it should be this way all the time because that also empowers the players. So. You know, I've definitely heard that argument that like, if the rule is in a book, then the players can know the rule and then the players can play the game, I'm air quoting here, better. And I wonder, you know, that comes down to player skill knowing the rule set kind of thing, system mastery, if you will. But if you don't do it consistently, then they can't do that. Now, again, this is not my belief to be fair. I often say that the thing that needs to be consistent is that you're fair. And that it makes sense in the world. But that, I do see the argument the other way. And again, I would love feedback on that from people that believe that way. Because I know that probably somebody listening to this podcast feels the way that, no, if, if you need to copy spell into a book, there should always be a rule for it. Because if there's not, it's not fair. The DM can just fiat it and go, oh, today I'm going to make it more difficult. But again, if you play by the rule of what's consistent is that you're fair, then I think you won't have that, right? The DM is going to make it difficult when it's fair that it should be. And if not, then they're going to make it when they just want to be a jerk.
2: <laughs> hey, Daniel, Michael, Chicago Wiz with yet another comment on classes and races. But uh, based on the comments, you're, you're uh, talking to Jason about illusions and you have to do something to actively disbelieve it. That's brilliant. I mean, that should be, to me, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's something I'm going to instantly adopt. Um, The idea, you've got to actively do something to counter the... You you can't just walk into the room and go, oh, I disbelieve everything. Well, what the hell is that, you know? No, you have to go in and actively do something. And if you're, you know, if, if you're in combat and you're going, well, I disbelieve, well, that's your action for the round of doing whatever it is that you're going to do to actively disbelieve. You know, you got to walk up to that Orc and poke it in the face, you know? <laughs> I disbelieve you poke roar slam. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Anyway, that that's that is so awesome and I'm I'm sure maybe that's somewhere in, in somewhere written someone's come up with that idea, but I love it. I'm going to use it. Thank you for that. All right, game on.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I love the idea of the player character being so bold that they like do something like that. Like they go up and you know, you always, sometimes you see this in movies where like somebody does, Oh, uh, like a Scooby-Doo or something. No, no, it's not a monster. And they go, but they try to pull the mask off and it doesn't come off. Right? <laughs> I could totally see that. That'd be very, very funny. All right. We have another one. I know they're out of order. So when he says, uh, last one or whatever i'll let you know when we get to the end
2: hey daniel michael chicago is i'm listening to your response to my previous call-in i apologize for the length of it i think i get too lengthy here um counterspelling i have used counterspelling since 2009 hmm. i pulled the rules directly from chain mail and threw them into ad and d and it is wonderful uh and it's always funny when, when my you know my magic users are running around and, and they start to cast spell. and go, ah, you're being counterspelled. They're like, what? I'm what? <laughs> and, and then they remember that I've got that house rule, and uh, suddenly they're counterspelling, and uh, you know that goes on for a while till they forget again. Um, but highly recommend it. It definitely adds a very interesting wrinkle, and uh, yeah, it's great fun. Try it out. Okay, more to listening. On.
0: Fantastic. Please do let me know some more details or point me to your podcast or your blog if you've written up about this because, like in my response to Ray, I'm trying to figure out where in the combat sequence if at all this should take place. Maybe it's something that happens after combat. What I had actually said, and I'm remembering now when I was talking to my friend Todd, was I think in Chainmail and maybe I'm wrong here. People tell me this who have played Chainmail because it's not super clear when it actually happens. I assume that it just happens on the wizard's turn. So effectively, you wouldn't actually stop somebody from casting a spell. You would counter their spell and make the spell stop, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm explaining that very well, but the way I see it is, and I'll explain it very quickly, the way I kind of imagine it working in Chainmail. Yeah, it says, if there are two or more opposing wizards and the game is not a recreation of a battle found in a novel, determine which is stronger. The stronger opposition can successfully cast a counterspell with a two dice score of seven or better. And that's basically what it says. It doesn't say anything about when it happens in the combat sequence because, of course, spells aren't in the combat sequence. Now, I put them in artillery. Um, <laughs> maybe they should go in missile fire, really, because that's what a wizard would normally go, right? Because their their weapon is a missile. So I don't know. Uh, let me know where it happens, if at all, in the combat sequence and how you adjudicate that because I definitely want to use it. And like this, like I say, the one in chainmail works really well. Oh, so my point was is that I imagine it happening more like wizard a on their turn cast cloud kill wizard b on their turn cast Counterspell. so it would be because you have that you know you go i go thing uh in chainmail i assume with the spell casting because again it's not i guess during the movement phase is when i would do it let me know Uh, i'd be curious about that all right moving on we got another one mesopotamia
2: hi daniel michael again chicago is listening to uh classes and uh races So your thought of gods is kind of interesting in that it actually has historical precedence with Mesopotamian uh, culture and mythology. Because each city in Mesopotamia did worship their own god. Um, Ur had Enki, uh, Enlil, and um, other cities had their own uh, gods that, that were central to their pantheon, and the wars between the various city-states could be thought of also as religious wars. (laughs) My god's more powerful than your god, and I'm going to prove it by kicking the snot out of you and taking your land and and possibly even overrunning your cities. Um, So fascinating thought that clerics could be directly linked geology-wise Um, territory wise to wherever they are and that is where your god's power is primal and that's where you're going to get the highest level of spells you know god gods may be powerful elsewhere but not as powerful as the local god and that local god is going to prove it by stomping you with the highest level spells so yeah makes total sense and you have historical precedence so very nice anyway i'm going to keep listening game on
0: well, all righty then. That sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I think I will make it the fourth level spells. I think that works. And then maybe also researching spells. But I love the idea of it being the fourth level spells, right? Because, and again, those aren't spells that, well, I mean, funny enough, my uh, character, I said the fourth, but I have fifth level, I think it declares. Uh, they, uh, we have a cleric with the commune spell, which is incredibly powerful. And, and this is why I love my players. They don't cast it all the time. They could every week you can cast it, but they don't. You know, they wait for a key moment where they feel like they're stuck. And then they're like, all right, we're going to cast a spell. And they really think about what they want to do with it. And I love that because, again, they're like in the fiction, if you will. They're not gaming the system going, well, let's just wait a week and commune again, get three answers we want, then sit around for another week, commune again. You know, which you could actually imagine people doing. And by doing it this way, you might be off on an adventure on some, like in my case, I'm using the Misty Islands. So they might be like off on a different island adventuring, they run into something where they need that commune spell and now they have to travel back to their homeland to cast it. I really love that idea. So I think I probably will end up incorporating that. Any more feedback from other people, let me know. And we have one more, which I guess was probably uh, Michael's first message, but I'm playing it at the end.
2: Daniel, it's Michael, Chicago Wiz, listening to your classes and races in your Unchained game episode. Uh, I have a feeling I'm going to be making a lot of comments on this. Um, First off, My hat is off to you, sir, for stealing from one of the properties that I have loved stealing from, the Elder Scrolls, because your dwarves are the Falmer from Elder Scrolls. And if you haven't played it before, (laughs) well, you might want to check it out, because there are a whole ton of similarities between what you did with your dwarves and the Falmer. Um, The the Falmer were a uh, Skyrim invention, uh, 2011-2011. um, to my knowledge, they weren't... I think they were hinted about earlier, perhaps, in some of the lore, but um, they weren't really... Well, no, that's not true. Um, Morrowind, I think, had the Falmer in it, or Snow Elves. At least um, there was a quest that you had to go on, now that I'm thinking about it and I'm talking more. Um, I don't remember if you ran into the Falmer in... Um, the oh, and, and now I'm blanking on, on the Morrowind uh, um, expansion. Um, uh, and, and as soon as I stop talking to you, I'm going to remember it. But anyway, um, well done. I, I am someone who believes that you should steal liberally and often from uh, IP and places where you get inspiration. I've stolen from Elder Scrolls quite a bit. Uh, that's why there are no dwarves in my world. Uh, the players need to figure out why. Or they have an opportunity to figure out why if they so choose. But um, anyway, um, I like what I'm hearing so far. Now, I, obviously, um, my OD&D campaign isn't quite as fleshed out as yours. and uh, But I always like hearing about what you're doing. Um, I don't, you know... This it, is one of those things where it's really hard for me to... Uh, comment and critique and give advice because i'm always the person of hey it's your setting you get to do what you want if it works for you in your campaign great but i like what i hear i don't hear anything that's really you know i'm like oh you know i would do it differently because I, I wouldn't i would happily play in your campaign and i think what you're putting out there makes a lot of sense and it's going to be great uh inspiration for other people to you know find their own way Anyway, I'm just up to the point where you're talking about the clerics and whatnot, so I'm going to continue listening and uh, see if I've got any of the comments later on. So stay tuned and game on.
0: Thanks, Michael. That's uh, very nice of you to say. Great compliment. I, uh, you know, I've never played that video game, and I wonder. So the the dwarves, and, and again, maybe this comes from this as well. The idea of the dwarves being dead came from a, oh, I can't remember what it was, it came, it came from an adventure that I ran where the elves basically had wiped out the dwarves in a war 3,000 years prior. And we ran this adventure, and of course I won't be able to think of the name of it while I'm recording, and with my group. And then, then we really liked playing OD&D, so we kept playing OD&D, and I just kept that as a thing. I was like, well, there's no dwarves in my game because the elves would wipe them out. And I had done that through multiple like little one-shots and like two- and three-session things where there were just no dwarves. Then when I started developing the system, I started thinking, well, maybe there are dwarves that just got run deeper and deeper into the earth. And then through brainstorming and talking with my friend Nikki, we came up with this. And I wonder if she has played that because she definitely is a video game type person. So I'll have to ask her if she did. It may be, you know, maybe that was in the back of her mind because it may have, you know, at least the the uh, a decent chunk of it came from uh, talking with her. So there you go. It, it's funny how, like, we absorb things into our brains. I will say this. That sounds really fun, and now I want to play it. So I'll have to see if she has that game or if it can be had because she does have the the PlayStation machine. I call it the video game machine because clearly (laughs) I am not a video gamer. But they always sound so awesome. I did watch an actual play of somebody playing Ultima after you were talking about Ultima, and it was just the most epic thing I've ever seen in my life. So I I have to at some point uh, play Ultima too. Well, not Ultima 2. Three, I think, is the one you said to play. But I'll probably play the first one because I'm weird like that. I like that he had, like, a ray gun. <laughs> and he was fighting skeletons in a dungeon. Oh, so good. Anyways, that's totally different. But, uh, yes, thank you so much for calling in. And I believe we do, guys, mentioned Jason's name, and I believe I do have some calls from Jason. Let's take a look.
3: Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Listen to how you handle your classes and species or your classes and how, whatever you're going to refer to them as, ancestries. So, for a straight sword and sorcery, I mean, obviously, you'd mainly stick to human, but I think I would get rid of halflings. I don't know the halflings really need to be there at all. But, that said, there's no problem with having them in there, and they're they're in the base rules, and people are going to see references to them in Chainmail. So, no harm in having them there at all. As far as elves go, I like the way it's set up originally, and and if you haven't looked at Delving Deeper, Delving Deeper, which is another ODD clone, that does it as well where you have to pick what you're going to be. So before you go out to adventure, you have to pick, are you going out as a magic user or are you going out as a fighting man? And I like that. I like making them have to do that choice. But if you are going to make them a combo like we have in later editions, I would 100% make them spend experience points for a class they're maxed out in, because otherwise they're going to progress too quickly in the other class. I I don't think that would be fair, because of the extra bonuses they get. As far as letting them choose to be a 4th level magic user 8th level fighting man, I'm okay with that, you know, whether you're a fighting elf or a magic using elf, but I would look at the spells that are available, if they get most of the cool combat spells and good spells by fourth level, then that might make them a little bit overpowered. I don't know. Um, I'm driving in the car, so I can't look. I'm trying to remember. I think you have to be fifth level to cast Fireball, but I might be wrong on that. Okay, let me listen to your cl- your thoughts on classes.
0: So that was Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. Thanks, Jason. You know, I think you're kind of right. I mean, I feel bad because when I was a kid, and this is again, I've got to let it go. We're going to start singing again. You know, the halfling thief, often named uh, Bilbo, uh, was my favorite character to play. And I have a hard time getting rid of halflings. (laughs) Also, I got to say the always being in short range is a really, really powerful feature. So they're kind of good for that. They are limited, of course, but I think you're right. They're, they're, They're not hurting anything being there, but I don't know if I really need them. Insofar as the experience points, yeah, I agree with you. I I think that if I am going to make them always progress in both, then I think you got to split it. Otherwise, the elves will just... Because right now I can tell you, in my game, we have one elf who's actually the oldest surviving character. He actually was the first character this player made and the only one who survived through this whole thing. They are on seventh level now, so almost maxed out. They've never run any fighter level because really, because the way I have the game set up, if you're in a decent sized group, The elf being a magic user doesn't really hurt them because they can use the weapons. That's the way I do it anyways. And they just can't wear the armor. And then what you do is the very first time you get a suit of magic armor, you give it to that elf. And now all of a sudden you've got effectively not quite as good of, but you've got a fighter. So the elf magic user only is just very powerful. So that's one reason why I thought about doing this because I think most people playing the game will just play elf magic users. Uh, As far as the choosing fighting elf magic elf I think I might use that cuz I do like that idea and also as far as what you said check the spells uh, at 4th level you can only cast 2nd level spells so you would not be able to cast fireball fireball being a 3rd level spell I there's probably some powerful spells on 2nd level but I think that they're not so powerful as to make that uh, you know fighting elf and equal, if you will. I'll also point out that because I'm using just the three little brown books, I don't have things like Magic Missile in my game. So I think that fighting Elf would be pretty cool. And I kind of think maybe you could make that choice even at when one of the classes reaches fourth level, right? That's when you make the choice, because obviously you have to make it when one of them reaches fourth level. So you can start off as an Elf and then let it be a later choice. So through the first through the first uh, three levels, you just... you you're both right equally. And then when you get to fourth level, you decide if you're going to be a fighting elf, like it's kind of a path you can choose almost like the way fifth edition does it. I'm not sure though. I'm still up in the air about that. I'll probably just leave it the way it is because it works. And why change it if it's not broken and people can obviously homebrew whatever they like.
3: Try three on classes. I, I keep water off and, and diary of the mouth. Um, so clerics and gods. I like the idea of each people or each city having its own God When you look at Conan, the stories, and especially like the Marvel comics, we see multiple gods discussed. We see some characters invoke multiple gods, right? Um, So I like having that in there. I think the smaller, lesser deities of like a a backward people or um, of a city or something like that, but some of these smaller deities probably wouldn't have the reach and, and the abilities that some of the bigger gods have without a doubt, you know. Mitra or Metra, however you say that, would be, you know, kind of be like what you're setting a pastor to be in your world, right? Um, Why would all the PCs follow the main god, though? I realize game-wise it makes it easy, but, you you know, in world, I'm not sure it makes sense that they would all follow the same god. All the PCs follow this god, but NPCs follow whatever god they want.
0: Well, again, it's it's all how you look at it. Sorry, I'm cutting in. It's not that all PCs follow the same god, it's just that the class cleric would be worshipers of Hastur. It's not that you're a cleric, you can choose any god you want, but you're going to be Hastur because you're a PC. That, that, that's what I meant by that. I don't know if that's what I will do, but that's kind of what I was thinking. So it wouldn't just be cleric, generic priest, it would be cleric equals priest of Hastur, if that makes sense. And actually, since you were talking about Conan, that tracks a little bit with the with Mithras, right, or, or Mithras. Because that's the one god that we seem to see everywhere, and they're the ones that are like recruiting people, and they're moving around. It, it, at least in the stories I've read, most of the other like lesser gods are basically just peoples that are in villages or cities and they worship this god. A lot of them are demon type gods, obviously in Conan, and uh, but that one kind of I'm air quoting true god or whatever of Mithras, that's spreading their word everywhere is the one that the follow that you have followers wherever you go, and that's what the cleric would be. That that's what I meant by that not as a restriction to the player characters. I mean, if you were like, I want to play a priest of blah, blah, then maybe you would just not be a cleric, right? You'd be something else. But I don't know. Again, I'll probably just leave it the way it is. <laughs> I think I will use the localized gods because like I was saying earlier, but um, well, at least the rest of your uh, comment that I'll talk about that.
3: I, I do think though, the role-playing aspect of that though, it is really neat. And, and I can definitely understand why you're doing it in your campaign. So... Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I like the idea of having a bunch of different ones. And it's, and if you do these different ones with the lesser, the lesser deities, then, yeah, when people are away from their city or away from their, their area, you know, or away from the sea, if it's a sea god or whatever, then, yeah, they shouldn't get those higher-level spells, and that's just uh, what it is. But then we're letting the PCs get their spells everywhere, so it's kind of, I don't know. I PCs aren't heroes, so maybe it works
0: out. Right, exactly. So what, what you're saying is kind of what I was thinking as I was, you know, recording the the, the episode. Because, of course, I just have my little notebook in front of me. And I'm like talking. It's funny, when I record these, I'm, I'm telling you what I've done. I'm also making notes in my book as I go. And I think that I'm still torn on this one. I definitely like the idea of the lesser gods. I like the idea of the worshipers of the lesser god not necessarily be able to cast their high level spells unless they're close by the god's domain but i also don't know if that's too much of a limiter on the pcs and of course a lot of this comes down to how i run my game right i've probably talked about this before but my player characters are like portal jumping they're going to different dimensions they're going to different planets so to me it would be amazingly limiting to be like well You've got to go all the ways back up to where you started. You know, that it took us six months of play to get where you're at to be able to cast fourth level spells. I think that would be too limiting. I think within a domain and a smaller thing, like I was saying to Michael's message, if I was just playing in the Misty Islands and you were on a different island, it was going to take you six weeks on a boat and that could be part of the fun of the campaign, that's different. So it kind of comes down to what you're playing, right? If you're going to do a lot of these, like I always wondered... And I don't remember exactly how this works. Maybe somebody could tell me if they played, but like Spelljammer, right? Because the gods are different in different uh, parts of D&D. Like, how does that even work if you're a cleric? And what if you're in the middle part where the gods aren't, do you not get spells? I I can't remember what the rules are there. And I always thought that was kind of weird only from the point of view of a gamist or a player where like, I don't want to play a class that I'm immediately weaker because I'm not hanging out near my home, which means I don't have a reason to adventure. So thus the idea of Hastor being everywhere. And the thing is, is that again, if I if you think about like I was saying earlier, the followers of Hastor being the clerics, and not everybody in the world even knowing, right? There's this powerful deity that that has power everywhere, but most people don't know about them. That's why I read that part from the book because I thought it was really interesting that the local person who had their own god didn't. They were like, "What? There's no gods that go press borders," <laughs> you know. So again, I think that's really interesting, and perhaps the cleric would become probably not in this version of it this this alpha version it probably won't be but the cleric may actually be changed right not even called that it might just be called priest of hastor or something to that effect but anyways i will uh there's one more call from jason and that might be the end of our calls but let's listen to this first and we'll see
3: all their thunderstorms so as far as the healing spells go the cure wind spells go yeah i think having a faster cure wind spell works if if they're too similar the way you're going to use them in the game, then having that higher level spell heal faster, I think, is useful. Again, not instant heal where I can touch you and you're healed immediately in the battlefield. Although, in the case of a 24th level Cleric, I'd be okay with that. (laughs) But, yeah, the the key is that you could, you know, potentially stabilize that character and then after the combat, when you roll them over, they're going to be alive still because of those spells. But, yeah, I
0: like the idea of a, a faster healing spell. That's that's a good way to handle it. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, I think so, too. And, again, that was I was talking about how, I, how I'm making notes for myself as I do this. That was literally something that I came up with while I was creating the episode and, and thinking about it. Because I think the idea of, and, again, I'm going from the play test. It's like nobody, even though my cleric is capable of it, she's never taken a cure serious. Because the chances that it, it would be useful in the way that the spell is written is not very good. Like, in, you know, and you only have so many of those higher-level spell slots. I think it's a fourth-level spell. So, really, it's it makes more sense for her to take two, you know, cure lights and then uh, hope that two people don't go down the same round. <laughs> and I do think I'm going to use the 10-minute, I think I said this last time, the, you know, just pop back up. I have been using these pop back up, but I, I think, I think yeah, I think I won't have them pop back up. Uh, although, in fantasy combat, I'll need to figure something out because if if it takes 10 minutes in fantasy combat, then it's useless. So... I feel like in that case, it might be instantaneous. But again, that kind of combat breaks the rules. I guess I'm going to go full circle back to what I talked about at the very beginning of this, because that is the last call. Unless somebody called online, which I will check. So if I pop back in with another call when I'm finished with what I'm about to say, then there's one more call, but I don't think so. I don't love a single system. But as I start to tighten the game up, I realize that people don't want to memorize... (laughs) three complete distinct things so it's and there are some things that do overlap like each as much as in my fantasy mind i would love every monster to have their own rules you you pick up the monster for the the rule for the ogre and when you fight ogres you use your strength plus your con divided by their charisma Um, obviously i'm being facetious here but you know and that's how you fight an ogre right but i know in the end that's just not practical for most games So, I mean, that would be practical in like a video game, right? Sometimes that's the case. Like different creatures have to be fought differently. But in an RPG, we want to know the rules. The rules do empower the players. So I want to have enough diversity that we're not always just rolling a d20 and trying to get high. Because I don't like that. That's too boring for me. And I want the meat and crunch of the detailed combat. I want the speed of the abstract combat. And I want the fantastic amazingness of fantasy combat. But some things will cross borders. So things like shields always blocking a hit. I don't know if I said that or not. That's going to be no matter what. So a magic shield will always operate the same way. Magic armor won't always operate the same way because of the way armor works and the various things. But, you know, it'll be similar. Magic swords, again, won't always operate the same way. So some things are going to always operate the same way. Healing would be one of them. You're either up or down in abstract combat or there's hit points. And hit points take a long time to heal or they can be healed magically, and that doesn't matter what kind of combat you're using. Anytime you lose hit points, if a dragon breathes on you, it's not man-to-man combat, but that's hit point damage. If a lightning bolt hits you, that's not man-to-man combat, but it's hit point damage. Stuff like that. Poison would be another thing. So that's what I'm working on now: figuring out what is universal, what's not universal, putting it together. I'm going to Shire Khan this weekend, so I will not work on it during this weekend. But starting next week, I'm going to start really nailing this thing down because if I am going to have some kind of workable alpha, then I need to really uh, put all this stuff in. And a big part of it is just going through the document and changing a line here, a line there. Some of the things I had going on early on, for instance, where I talk about the the player and the referee decide at the beginning of combat what types of combats will be used. That's less an issue now because most of the combats are the only choice if you're in that situation so some of that stuff can be removed that's where i'm at now so pretty excited to get it together to send out in an alpha version and uh, thanks everyone for calling in we got jason from the nerds rpg variety cast we got chicago Wiz from the dungeon masters handbook and ray from thundergrounds now i'm I'm still looking for that call (laughs) oh man i was just about to wrap up and i realized there's another call from jason so let's hear what jason has to say This, I believe, is a response to a YouTube video based on the title.
3: Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Just finished your YouTube video about villains in D&D, and I really enjoyed it. I think you brought up some great points. And you're right. There are so many examples in fiction and in real life where your villain's real power is their influence. And so when the heroes get through all the minions and get through the bodyguards and everything, the big bad really isn't that tough. Think about a movie like Forced Vengeance with Chuck Norris, right? Or think about more recently Mandy with Nicolas Cage. You, you know, that when, when they come up against that final boss, well, you know, it's not even a fight. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's something we don't usually see in games. Usually, when they reach that big bad in the game, then they turn out to be, you know, a boss like in a video game. But I, I really like that. And that's a good twist to put into a game. Uh, and depending on the party, you, you know, because especially if your party is not just going to kill an unarmed opponent, if they come up against this villain who's an old man or whatever that, you know, isn't putting up a fight, now they have to, what are they going to do? Are they going to arrest him take him to the local, you know, sheriff or whatever to turn him in or or are they going to execute this old man on the spot? You know, what are they going to do? And it causes that extra question, you know, how do you handle it when you get to that villain and they're not fighting you or casting spells at you at all? So, yeah, no, I think that's great. Great video.
0: Thanks, Jason. I hope you don't hear all that sound in the background. Sorry, I'm adding this in after, because like I said, I had the thing already recorded. Yeah, you know, and I even think this is one reason why I like superheroes, non punishery kind of superheroes, Because I like the idea that this person, even if they're a criminal whatever, when you get them and you've beaten them and they're down on their knees and you could theoretically take them out, you don't, right? You you bring them to justice, you do whatever. So that kind of uh, situation is tricky, you know, because sometimes it's harder to be the good guy. But in the end, if you are going to run campaigns and you do things like this where this is a factor, make sure it matters, right? That the pieces are rewarded for bringing the person into justice. Maybe they'll regret it later when the person gets out of jail. But, you know, when they do bring them, it's not just like, oh, whatever. You know, it makes a difference that they did that. And, it, and almost more so than it would be if they had just taken him out on the spot. Give them the incentive to not just kill everything they come up against. You know, for any number of reasons. At least that's the way I like to run the game. Let me know what you guys think. You can uh, call into the show. All the ways to do that are down into the show notes. Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast. We got Chicago Wiz from the Dungeon Master's Handbook and Ray from Thundergrounds all called in. I will put links to them in the show notes below. You can also find a link to my Discord down there. Join up over on the Discord. Lots of fun stuff going on over there. And also to my Patreon if you'd like to support the show. I appreciate that. And I'll talk to you soon.